we are winding up today and next Sunday a sub-series of lessons in our bigger series called Move. Uh, and this sub-series has been about the life of David. We've been looking at different events in David's life. And, and what we've done is look at these events from First and Second Samuel and then go to the Psalms and look at how David looked at these events through his own eyes as inspired by the Spirit of God. We come now to a period of David's life that many people would say, you know what, it, it, it really is that period that we don't know a lot about. Well, actually, we know a whole lot about it. David, of course, over the last two weeks, we looked at him when he committed his sin with Bathsheba, where he was walking up on his palace roof. He looked over, he saw her bathing, ended up committing adultery, was a participant in murder and deceit and lying, drunkenness. I mean, the list goes on and on. But what's fascinating about the story is that we think, well, when their child dies, that's the end of the story, and it's really not. It's the beginning of a very, very difficult time in David's life. In fact, if you turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 12, when Nathan comes to David, he says to him, listen, because of what you've done, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised Me, speaking of God, and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And so he says, I'm going to bring calamity to you from your own household. And before your very eyes, I'll take your wives. I'll give them to someone close to you. They're going to sleep with them in broad daylight, even though what you did was in secret. And thus begins about 12 years of incredible difficulty in David's life. David and Bathsheba have Solomon when he's 50 years old. Solomon comes to the throne when he's 20. David dies when he's 70. You know, 70 minus 20 is 50. And during that time frame, from about age 50 to about my age, I'm in my early 60s, David's family goes through incredible turmoil. And it begins with these simple words, in the course of time, Amnon is David's oldest son. And Amnon is the actual, probably, heir to the throne. The only problem is, is that David, even though he's a man after God's own heart, he had not really been the kind of father he should have been. He had married multiple wives, ended up with different families under the same roof, all kind of jealous and vying for power. And the text says that Amnon, much like his father, looked at a young lady that he shouldn't have been looking at. It happened to be his half-sister, Tamar. And he began to lust after her, and the end results was tragic. The oldest son of David sexually assaults his half-sister, the sister of Absalom. Notice the language there, the beautiful sister, referring back to the fact that, that Bathsheba had been very beautiful. It's amazing the links as you go through the text. And after he assaults her, David hears about it. And the text says he's furious. Only problem is, he should have immediately said, you know what, Amnon, the law says you should die. But we know the problem with that, and that is that David should have died for his sin. And so he can't find himself to punish his own son, his firstborn son, because of his sin. So much like the father's sin. However, Absalom, his thirdborn, is furious. 
How could his half-brother Amnon do this to his full-blooded sister? And notice in the text, he hated her. Or excuse me, hated Amnon because of that. Two years pass. David's kind of let it slide. Absalom hasn't. And so Absalom goes to his dad and said, we're shearing sheep, we want to celebrate. Let all of my brothers come with me. And they all show up for this event, which has secretly been planned. So much secrecy going on in the story. And his intention is to kill his brother. And that's what he does. Word gets back to David, all of your sons are killed. And David's like, what? And then word says, no, not all of them, just Amnon. And the end result is Absalom flees. He knows what he's done. His dad's not going to like. He goes to live with his grandfather, who is the king of uh, Geshur. His name is Talmai. And he goes there and he lives. And if you'll notice in the text, he stays there for three years. During that three years, David gets over Amnon's death and begins to miss Absalom, his third-born son. After three years, through some deception... Joab brings Absalom back to Jerusalem. And so Absalom comes to Jerusalem. The only problem is David won't see him, refuses to go to him. And so for five years, David and Absalom don't see each other. I haven't seen my grandkids for about five months. They're in today. I've got both of my sons and my grandkids in today. And let me tell you, five months is a long time. Can you imagine five years. And so finally he sees Absalom. The text says that when he finally saw Absalom, he kissed him. He loved him. He was so glad to see him. But the problem is Absalom is still harboring his hate. And so over a period of time, he begins to go behind his father's back He goes outside by the gate. When people come in to see David, he intercepts them. And notice what he says, if only I were appointed judge in the land. I know what's going on in Absalom's mind. Dad's getting old. Dad's lost his moral compass. Maybe if I were king, I could get things right. And over time, notice the last phrase on the screen there, so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. So he goes to his dad four years later. He's been working on this. If you can imagine all of this time frame, over 10, 12 years. And so he finally, after four years, he goes to his dad and says, Listen, I've made a vow. I need to go to Hebron. David says, Go. Absalom heads down to Hebron. Now, Hebron had been the capital before Jerusalem was. It's where Abraham was buried. Isaac, Jacob. I mean, it's the center of Israelite culture. And Absalom goes there and proclaims himself king. And word gets back to Jerusalem. Absalom just proclaimed himself king. And David's like, we are in trouble. And so David immediately orders everybody in Jerusalem who's on his side, we've got to get out. Absalom's fixing to march on us. He's going to end up capturing us. He'll kill us. And so they begin to stream toward the east. Hebron's down to the southwest. And so here's David with all of the army that's loyal to him, all of his family. Solomon, who's now, you know, somewhere around 10, 11, 12 years old. All of these people pouring out of Jerusalem, trying to flee from Absalom and his army that's coming. David weeps and the people weep. He gets on top of the Mount of Olives and he hears word that a man by the name of Ahithophel, 
Ahithophel is David's biggest advisor, one of the wisest men in the land. And word comes to him, he's joined the other side. And David knows he's in trouble. And so he gets on top of the Mount of Olives, just to the due east of Jerusalem, and he says, notice, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. God works through a friend of David by the name of Hushai. Absalom comes into the city. He then goes. David's left some of his concubines behind. He says, I want you to bring my father's concubines to the top of the palace. He sleeps with them there in full view of all of Israel in order to show everyone, let me show you who I am. I'm not afraid of my dad. And then he calls in his advisors. I've captured Jerusalem. What do I do now? And Ahithophel tells him, he says, attack now. David is fleeing. He's old. His men are old. I mean, he's got all of his family with him. I mean, the people of Jerusalem. You can quickly take him, kill him, and you'll have the throne. But God's placed Hushai secretly there in the palace. And so Absalom calls Hushai in and says, here's what Ahithophel says. What about you? What do you say? And he says, don't attack. You know your dad, he's a ferocious fighter. Don't attack. Get your army together, then attack. And Absalom listened to Hushai instead of Ahithophel. End result is David has time to get his forces rested, gets them organized, they go into battle. Absalom, at Hushai's request, leads the attack. He's got this beautiful long hair that he grew every year, weighed a ton when he cut it. And during this battle, he goes under a tree, hair gets caught in the tree, jerks him off, and he's hanging in this tree. David had pleaded with Joab, be kind to Absalom. By the way, Joab and Absalom are first cousins. Joab hears that Absalom's hanging from a tree, takes three basically small short spears and throws them into his heart and kills him. And in the process breaks David's heart. Absalom, Absalom, oh my son, Absalom. There's another story though that helps us understand this one. Brian Shepherd, who runs our counseling center, I've asked Brian to reflect a little bit on this crazy family's dynamic. Brian, come on up. The story of David and Absalom is one of the more interesting stories that we really find in the Old Testament. It brings out just incredible dynamics of what goes on inside of families. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to speak, and I talked about this story. And I told the, the folks, I said, I really wish you had given me a different story. And they said, really, which one? I said, I wish you to give me the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son story has within it, though it's a parable, the opportunity for redemption. This story, unfortunately, brings us to a very different place. So I want to kind of contrast those two stories this morning. Since I'm not assigned one of them, I can actually address both of them. You know, there's two stories here about two boys. And the two boys are both dealing with their fathers. 
And whether it's in Luke 15 or whether we're here in 2 Samuel 18, we find that these two boys both had a problem with their father. And in the process, what we find is as these two boys experience life, there's something that they want that is not rightfully theirs. It's interesting, when you read the story of the prodigal son, you see some of the same dynamics. You see the, uh, the younger son going to the father saying, give me my portion. But what's interesting in the story of the prodigal son, it says this. It says, the father gave him of his, meaning the father's, estate. It was not the son's to take. The kingdom here in uh, David's time was not Absalom's. It belonged to David. We have these two boys. They both come to a crisis. In the forest of Ephraim, it says there in the text in one place that, in fact, it says the forest killed more people than the battle did. And whether it was his hair, as some texts suggest, or whether he caught his head in the tree somehow... Somehow he's stuck. You ever been stuck? I've been stuck. In the wintertime, I grew up up north, you'd get stuck all the time. Stuck in the snow, stuck in the mud. Down here, you get stuck. You go to the beach, you get stuck in the sand. There are lots of ways in which we can relate to the fact that when you're stuck, you can't go anywhere. These two boys both found themselves stuck at one point. The story of the prodigal son, where's he stuck? He's stuck in a pig pen. You look at the narrative of the story, and there's so much, whether it's in the story of David and Absalom or whether it's the prodigal son and the father, and you find that there is vast amounts of information that it would be nice if we knew. I want to look first at the prodigal son for just a moment. Think about it for just a moment. Wonder what conversations took place once he found himself in the pig pen. The man he worked for. You ever wondered what the conversation was like and how he got hired? What was that conversation like? Did he disguise the fact that he was a a Jewish boy? Did he disguise that? Because anybody would have known that that was going to be a disgrace for him. That's not the kind of guy you'd hire to feed the pigs. But he did. You wonder what kind of conversations happened with the other people around. You wonder if the prodigal son ever told anybody who he really was. Did he ever divulge that his father was wealthy? Did he ever divulge the stupid decision that he made? You see, when we look at these stories, they have something in common. And the thing that they have in common is, it's their thinking that got them where they were, just like us sitting here today. The things that you're going through, the experience of life that you're having, it's because of your thinking, isn't it? I thought this, therefore I did this. Now that's what we can, I think, best hope for, is that we've thought our way into things. So many things that we go through today, we haven't thought our way into. We've reacted our way into We live in a world right now that is filled with reaction, not thought. The challenge, I think, that exists before us is how do we make sure that we think our way to where we want to be rather than reacting in such a way that we end up in places we really did not intend to be? Because that is happening a lot. 
You see, when you go through these situations, what you find is you are oftentimes, when you react, unaware of what the consequences actually are going to be. You, in fact, have ignored, generally, advice or signs or indications around you that what you're thinking or doing is not a good thing. We find ourselves at times living with ill-conceived plans that are doomed for destruction. The two sons, as they find themselves going through this difficulty, experience very different outcomes. You see, with the story of Absalom, he ends up being killed there in that tree. But for the prodigal son, there is the unique difference that occurs when he's in the pig pen. Because when he's in the pen feeding these pigs, the story says, and most of us are aware of this, but it says that he came to his senses. Why is it that so oftentimes we have to get to the pig pen to come to our senses? Why do we have to hit rock bottom? Why do we have to fail so miserably sometimes before we recognize the lack of thought associated with some of our decisions. Wonder what things occurred in both of these young men's lives that set them up for the decisions that they made. What led them to make the choices that they did. And what advice, what thoughts, what insight did they ignore? Oftentimes, when I'm talking with someone, I'll ask them, do you remember anything at all that occurred that might have caused you to think that you shouldn't have done this or you, this was a bad idea? And the majority of the time, someone will say, you know, this happened or that happened, but I just didn't listen to it. I didn't pay attention. I didn't think it was, was right. And oftentimes that's how we end up in some of the places we never intended. You know, I, I love the place in Proverbs 31 where this woman of great uh, virtue, this uh, industrious woman, this woman of noble character, it sometimes says, it says she considered a field And then she bought it. And then she planted a vineyard. That is such a great thing to understand. She thought about it. She thought about what she wanted to do with it. And then she did it. You see, so oftentimes what happens is something happens and our reaction is very closely paired with the impulse. And therefore, it means it's an impulsive decision. Some of our best thinking is when something occurs and the reaction is way over here. The distance allows for, guess what? Thinking. It allows us the opportunity to consider, like the woman in Proverbs 31. She considered what she actually wanted to do She considered the outcome. She made a decision with the end in mind. 
she knew the outcome. She knew she wanted a vineyard, so she considered the land as to whether or not it was appropriate for the planting of a vineyard. Have you ever considered something or not considered something and didn't like the outcome? Back in 1982, I'm going to tell one on, on myself here, so maybe you can relate a little bit, or you'll just go, boy, he's stupid. Which, both of those things could be true. So, back in 1982, uh, we had our first child, and I decided that our car was not big enough. So I went out and I bought a custom van. Now, this will date me a little bit, but inside that van, you could open up a full-size playpen for one child. And all the stuff that went with it. Now, some of you may have done the same thing, I don't know. But I bought a used van. I didn't check it out very well. And it turns out that shortly after I bought it, a thing called the timing chain broke. Some of you in here know what that is. The timing chain broke, and I had helped do one before. I'd helped put one on before. So I start taking parts off the front of this van. The radiator comes out, the water pump comes out, belts, bolts, pulleys, and even a little thing down at the bottom that I had to go get a special tool. Apparently it's called a harmonic balancer. Pulled it off. Started pulling parts off the front, found the chain. I put all this stuff in a box. It's all in a box over here. And I go get the chain. Well, it says make sure to mark these things. Right, Paul? Mark them so that you put them back on right. I wish I'd have known that. But I didn't. So I take this box of parts. I call an auto parts repair uh, place up, up the road. And I said, do you all put on timing chains? And he said, sure do. I said, I got a van, a very large van, that needs a timing belt. He said, just bring it up. I said, you'll have to come and get it. So they send a tow truck, and in the, in the place where the playpen had been is a box this big with parts in it. You should have seen the guy's face when I got there with this box of parts. He said, oh, you've tried to fix it yourself. And I said, yes, I did. And he said, well, that's definitely going to cost you extra. And it did. I want you to think for just a moment about what it means to come to your senses. I want to leave you with just a couple of things here that I think are very important. Number one, recognize your thinking can be better no matter how good it is. Your thinking can be better no matter how good it is if we are careful. Number one, think. The Bible says consider, just like the woman in Proverbs 31. Consider what you're doing before you do it. With social media, consider what you're typing before you send it. It's easy to hide behind your computer or your phone or whatever. Consider what you're saying before you say it. Gain knowledge. Sometimes the best thing we can do is gain knowledge. I could have gotten a manual, and I probably would have done a much better job. There would have been fewer parts to take to the guy, but I didn't. I just started taking it apart. It turns out that's the easy part. Get advice. Get advice. Getting advice is one of the smartest things you can ever do. 
Find out if your thinking is consistent and if it is in line with traditional or helpful or useful thought. Advice. We have blind spots. There are things we don't recognize about ourselves. Especially those of us whose personalities, we don't tend to get it unless we see it. That means you're not intuitive. Intuitive people tend to understand where this is going before you get there. They tend to jump before they look less often. Whereas sensing folks do tend to jump sometimes before they have thought. Blind spots. What do I know about myself? Am I a spender? Am I impulsive? Do I have a temper? Am I greedy? Do I drink too much? Am I doing things to be seen of others? What are the things that we do that are the blind spots for us that cause us to react and to act in such a way that are more difficult for us, just like these two boys in the story? Then finally, when you make a decision, be willing to reevaluate the decision that you've made. Reevaluate. Decide if the decision that you've made is actually the right one. One of the things that I'm noticing more and more is this. Have you noticed that we're living in a culture of apology now? That's what I'm calling it. A culture of apology. And what I mean by that is, most of the time when somebody reacts like this, you end up apologizing because you haven't thought your response through. We're living in a rather sensitive time right now. And the responses that we make to things matter. Thinking through some of the changes our society is experiencing is important so that we aren't reacting in a way that is hurtful to others and keeps us from actually considering whether or not that's really what we intended to say or do. Because otherwise, we oftentimes end up having to apologize only after we've considered what we've thought or said or done. And then one of the hardest things, I think, for any of us to do is to actually admit when we're wrong. You know, I was wrong. I should never have pulled the front end off of that Chevy van. That was a stupid thing to do. But I did it. And it cost me money. I paid a price for it. You know what? I've never done it again. What are the things that you need to not do again? What are the things in your life that keep coming up that just like the van, you need to think about, you need to consider? You need to recognize that this property is not a good place to plant a vineyard. You need to realize that going against your father is not a great thing. Those are illustrations. What's your specific story? What are the things happening in your life that are keeping you from being where you want to be because of the thinking that you have is not supporting where you want to be? In my world, we call that incongruence. When your actions and thoughts don't match up, it's called incongruence. It's like in math where lines are not going on the same path. Incongruent. Incongruent at its worst is when we're at odds with God when we've not recognized that our path and the path that God has created for us are on the same line 
This morning, you have an opportunity, if you are not in connection with God, as you should be, to make that right. Or if you've never made the determination to walk parallel with our God, you can make that decision this morning by becoming his child. That's a considered decision that results in eternal life for us. This morning, if we can assist you in any way, please come while we stand and sing.